Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Christine Thackeray. Today and next week, too, we're going to be talking a lot about babies and women being pregnant. It's just fun, fun, fun Which stuff. Is why I wore pink. And I wore <laughs> blue because we're going to talk a lot about little baby boys. <laughs> so it's just wonderful for us to talk about today Matthew 1 and Luke 1. You know, we just are have celebrated the Christmas story. And so I think oftentimes people are like, okay, been there, done that. We've already read this, studied it. But I have to admit, going back deeper, really looking at these scriptures has really helped me to gain some new insights that I didn't have at Christmas time. Well, also, I think that this is pre-Christmas story. And so often we start with the nativity scene, and we don't start with this pre-Christmas and really focus on it. So it's so fun to do this group of women in these interesting, you know, Oh, and their testimonies. We're going to be talking a lot about their testimonies. testimonies. Well, before we get into that, we're also going to talk a little bit about Matthew and Luke, because they're the two that we're going to be studying for the next couple of weeks. Now, as I was studying about Matthew... For me, he's such an interesting person because he was, well, we call him a publican, but he was probably a portatoris, which is a different kind of tax collector. So you had two kinds. You had the publicani, who were basically Romans, and they were the ones that kind of said, all right, this area of the Roman Empire, you have to give us this much money, and this area, you have to give us this much money. But the uh, portatories were the actually tax gatherers, which was probably what Matthew was, and he would work under Herod. So Herod would be the one that would gather up all the money, and then Herod would have to give it on to Rome. So as we think about that, the Jews hated these tax gatherers. A matter of fact, they would excommunicate anybody who was willing to do this. So when we know about Matthew the first time, his name is not Matthew. At the very beginning, his name was Levi, son of Alphaeus. And then he took upon himself the name Matthew after he became an apostle. And Matthew means gift of God. I never knew that. That is a new one for me. Well, it's kind of interesting, too, when we think of this man who was a Jew but would have been excommunicated from society, Jewish society. And then we have this wonderful uh, kind of short little story in Matthew 9 through 13. And this is right after he's called to be an apostle, and he has a party. And I'm sure that, you know, he's just so happy to be included, (laughs) to be able to have this wonderful experience. And it says, this is in Matthew 9, 9 through 13, He says, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And then it goes on, and he says, and it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So Matthew's having a party. And when the Pharisees saw it, They said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. 
But the next thing he says to the Pharisees really is fascinating. He says, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> so saying you're one of those people. You're one of those. You need to go think about that statement I just wow. made. But I thought about this faithful, faithful Jew, Matthew, who had obviously an amazing understanding of the Old Testament. A matter of fact, while we read the words of Matthew, the interesting thing is, is he's the one that always brings us back to the Old Testament. His words are to the Jews to have them understand that Jesus is the Messiah. That is so thrilling to me because as you're saying that, I'm thinking as he looked at what's currently happening in Palestine, it wasn't what the Old Testament had prophesied. And so for him to kind of take that other side would make sense because neither the governorship or the high priesthood was where it should be as far as Old Testament prophecy. So it is amazing that his understanding of the Old Testament prepared him and made him okay with not being loyal to the current government. Well, the other thing about Matthew 2 is you'll see when he's talking about the Savior, he usually causes him, calls him the son of David. So he's doing that to make sure people understand that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Okay, do you ever do that in like your classes when you're sitting in church or anything and and someone's not getting a point, and so you use that little slide, you know, over truth, and over and, and you're over hoping again. they catch it, but they don't get it. I guess well, that's kind team. of what Matthew was doing. That's kind I of what Matthew yeah, was I've doing. Yeah, I've done that before. And a matter of fact, if we look at the very beginning of Matthew, the very first thing that he does is he goes over the genealogy. Now, when you think of this man who was truly an outcast of his own society, mm-hmm. and when you look at the genealogy, he also does a very interesting thing in that he talks very specifically about four women, which right there, that was a surprise. He talks about Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, each of these women were women that were also kind of outcasts of society, women who oftentimes had not been treated well by other men and also some of them were not even Jewish. They were not even part of the house of Israel. So we have Tamar, who many of you will remember that amazing old, well, that Old Testament story that's a little bizarre. I know. You have to admit. I know, and a little X-rated. A little (laughs) X-rated. Oh, definitely. I mean, she was a widow of Judah's oldest son, and then he tries to marry her off for the second son to mm-hmm. bring up seed, and but he the dies. Son, oh, yeah, and then the last and he son dies, is really and the young. last son is really, really young. Well, you wonder how young he really was. He uses that as an excuse, but, but he's, he's just, just worried he's going to lose right. another son. And so, poor Tamar is a widow without any hope of having a son, and realize at this point the son would take care of the woman. I mean, right. she was without help at all. And you couldn't own land unless... She couldn't do anything. And so Judah also had lost his wife and was seeking comfort. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that, comfort. And so she dressed up like a harlot and gave him comfort and also twin boys. Yes. Yes. And so when that's found out, 
Judah even says that she is more faithful than he. So she is the first one that he mentions. And then realize also Tamar was a Canaanite. She was not of the house of Israel. Mm -hmm. Then he mentions Rahab. And I love the story of Rahab and Jericho. She is the, we also call her a harlot, but we also wonder if she wasn't just a kind of a, a tavern keeper. Right. We don't know There's exactly. There's no details. There's no details. And we don't need to know. We don't know. <laughs> we don't need to, to think about that. But we do need to know is that she becomes a faithful Israelite. A matter of fact, it's interesting to me that after kind of saving all of the Israelites with the Battle of Jericho. And destroying her own people. <laughs> except for her family. That's her family safe true. with her. It's interesting, too, that they basically take her in. And she marries... Well, the person that was in charge of all of the army was also the leader of the tribe of Judah. And his name was... I always say it wrong. His name was uh, Nashon... And then he has a son, Salmon, which I love. I know. You know I know you think salmon. You're from the North I love Salmon. From, I'm from Seattle, and I love Salmon. But she marries Salmon, and then they have a son. This son becomes basically the, the grandson of Boaz. Right, grandfather. Grandfather. And Boaz marries Ruth, who is also a Moabite woman and a widow as well. And we know the story of Ruth. We've just read it. But the thing that's interesting for me is if we go to Ruth, and yes, I need to get there in my big scriptures, which I love so much. Basically, in Ruth chapter 4, we have this interesting thing. It's during the wedding. And the witnesses are there, you know, watch watching this wedding. Mm-hmm. And they all are at the gates and the elders are there and they say, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel and do thou worthily in Ephratah. Now Ephratah is the ancient name of Bethlehem Mm -hmm. and it means fruitful and be famous in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. And let thy house be like the house of Therese, whom Tamar bare under Judah, of the mm-hmm. seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So I love this scripture here in Ruth because they talk very specifically about Tamar, but also how Ruth, they're saying kind of like in prophecy, that she is going to bring all this wonderful, fruitful stuff there in Bethlehem and also continue the seed of, well, it's going to be David. I mean, basically, David's still not born yet. But then after that, King David, we also have Bathsheba. And for me, that's kind of an interesting story in and of itself in that the way that Matthew phrases this is he said, And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Oh, interesting. So he doesn't say Bathsheba, but instead he makes sure that people know 
that David had this baby wife of Uriah. So that made me think about section 132, where it says that David doesn't get his wives. So it'll be Uriah who gets Bathsheba. So it's kind of like he's a stepdad of Jesus. That's kind of cool. Well, I also feel a little bit too is that Matthew is making, because he does call Jesus the son of David. And so it's almost like in this little statement, he's saying, yes, he's the son of David, but, you know, David did have, you know, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And he's mentioning the righteous. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And he's kind of putting the focus on the fact that it wasn't Bathsheba's fault, you know. And so I, I love that about Matthew right here in the beginning. And then, of course, we have Mary. Mm-hmm. And he talks very specifically about her having a child conceived by the Holy Ghost. And I know we're going to talk a lot about Mary today. But for me, I think the beauty of Matthew is the love that he felt for these women who were outcasts because he was an outcast, too. A matter of fact, uh, Jennifer Stazak, who is a, a wonderful Bible scholar, she commented that Jesus came from a family filled with unlikely people, mm-hmm. including outcasts and harlots. Through this, Jesus tells us that he celebrated and loved the unlikely people once he can truly turn into unlikely heroes. I love that. And he's savior of the whole world. And you see that through his genealogy, that it incorporates more than just God's covenant people. Exactly. Well, like I said, Tamar, Canaanite, Ruth, a Moabite, and yet they too are a part of the genealogy of Matthew as he talks about, you know, who, you know, who the savior comes from. And it's also pointing always back to the Old Testament as we're going to see as we continue to read Matthew. Also, be aware when he's quoting Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets. He does that over and over again. That's what I love about Matthew. He has so many quotes. Whenever I read Matthew, I always live in the footnotes. Look at the footnotes, and I think you'll be surprised. How many words are fulfillment of prophecy. It's amazing. Well, I'll let you talk about Luke. Well, I wanted to start by asking the question... Who is the greatest contributor to the New Testament? Who wrote the most? Well, I have to admit, Christine asked me this question just before. I got it wrong. I know. I got it wrong. Well, I, and, thought, and, I thought it was Paul. Right, because Paul wrote 14 books. And everyone says, well, maybe 13, because whether Hebrews is from Paul, there's dispute. But it was, I think it was 14. Well, hey, wouldn't Hebrews, <laughs> wouldn't Hebrews take it over for Paul? It, no, it doesn't. It still No, doesn't. it still right. doesn't. Okay. And All John, right. of course, wrote five books because he had his three epistles. Right. He has but the... But short. Right. And, but yeah. Revelations is... It's pretty long. Pretty long. That's true. But um, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And right. so between... They're both hefty books, and he goes just over Paul. Um, in Numbers, uh, Luke is... 27 point, who cares, but 27.5 and Paul is 27.1% of the writing. Okay, so they're very I close, didn't know but that. Luke I wins. Know so that. Luke wrote the most of the New Testament. I love that. But the interesting thing about Luke is there is no information in profane history about Luke. The only thing we have is what's in the Bible about Luke. We know nothing else about him. He um, was a physician, we're told in Colossians. He was missionary companion to Paul, mm-hmm. we're told in um, Second Timothy. And 
like us, he missed the party. He missed having Christ there. He joined the church after Christ had died and was resurrected. And so he kind of went out and collected eyewitness accounts. And in the very front of Paul, in those first four verses, it kind of gives that idea of him searching for those eyewitness accounts. And in doing so, he was able to find a lot of information that's in no other place. And I was shocked by how many of my favorite stories are only in Luke. Well, I love the way that Luke also really loved the women. Yes. He he talked to the women and he gave them a voice. And that's the one wonderful thing about Luke that we're going to find. And you feel like as a physician that he spent he a cared. lot of time with the women that he mm-hmm. cared. And so you do feel like that. And actually the story of Anna and Simeon is only in the book of Luke. And um, the story of Mary's narrative of the nativity, the one that we most often use, is found in Luke. The interesting thing about that, that I never knew, and, you know, we in our family did um, nativity plays every year. We'd have the neighborhood or the whole family, and we had the whole costumes, right? and you do it, and it was... The towels and the ties around the head and all that kind of stuff. Actually, my children are already planning the one for this year. They're all excited (laughs) about it. I've got costumes I've used forever, but... um, When I first read the Nativity myself, and I remember because it was when I started seminary at 14, which Mm -hmm. is really pathetic that it was that long before I opened the scriptures myself, and I was reading it, and that line came up that Mary pondered these things in her heart. I I dismissed it. Like I was like, well, of course she would have thought about it. And I thought it was the silliest line, and it just like bugged me forever. And then to find out that it's saying... These are the words of Mary. This is what I got from Mary's own voice. And when I realized that, it shook me. It was like we have Mary's words at this incredible moment. And it just changed the way I looked at it. And you, oh, well, you also feel at that at the road to Emmaus, which is in no other point, that you wonder if he talked to like Cleopas and actually heard. That feeling where it's like, surprise, it's the Savior talking to us. And how wonderful it would be to talk to those people that had those powerful moments. I um, And this is only like an echo of that same feeling. But I remember when I was about eight in our ward on Pioneer Day, they had us all line up and shake the hand of this old, old man that was in his 90s. And behind him, there was a picture of a child in the arms of Brigham Young. And the child was him. Was him. Oh, And wow. we were able to touch the hand of someone that had been held by Brigham Young. And as a child, that just shook me. Like, how cool, how, how close we are. Right. And I think of that same feeling with Luke, that how close he was to Christ, but he still is like us and that we still have to have that faith. Um, And so anyway, some of the other things that Luke wrote that no one else did, the birth of John the Baptist, the story of Zacharias is only there. Um, We talked about Simeon and Anna, um, the boy in the temple, Jesus's experience in the temple. But I also like the fact when we talk about birth stories, which we're going to, especially next week, I think that, you know, the fact that he was a physician, he really cared about the physical parts of this story. And so 
women and having babies, he would have been much more involved in that yes, process. That's true. But that's also, true. he also gives us those details, which is pretty wonderful. Well, I was also interested that the Good Samaritan is only in Luke. The prodigal son, the 10 lepers. Yeah, but think Good Samaritan, the way he cares for the body of that man. That's true. You know, goes back to this. Oh, that's so interesting. Being, you know, and, being and a physician. How he cares. Exactly. Wow. You know, so the oil, like, he would have known wow, all that. that is so yeah. cool. And then the um, other one, he, he gives more teachings of John the Baptist than anyone else. He talks about Christ praying before many of his miracles and other experiences. And then he's the only one that talks about the calling and training of the 70, which I thought oh, was interesting. fascinating. Well, because he was a missionary. Yep. So, so he was he, part of that group. He would have part of that He would have been. Yeah. And then the other thing, and this is the best part of all, is he begins at the temple with Zachariah doing his service, and he ends at the temple. And I wanted to read this very last line, and this is the very last few verses of Luke, and I hadn't realized this power. But right after the ascension, and it says in 51, and it came to pass that while he blessed them, Christ, he was departed from them and carried up into heaven. And they, talking about the apostles, worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Oh, Amen. I love that. I and love so that. the power of those temple moments over and over again in Luke was really powerful, but you made a really good point. And that is because he was not a Jew, he wouldn't have been able to be in the temple. So we said maybe it was that great desire to have that moment to be in the temple. Well, and I love the fact that he also, we're going to see the temple is so much a part of the Savior's life. Absolutely. And a matter of fact, we're going to be talking about the temple, especially next week, in terms of how the temple affected as a brand new baby, but also as a 12-year-old, how the temple becomes a centerpiece mm -hmm. for everything the Savior does. And of course, that only makes sense because that's his house. But I think that also, as you talked about, Luke had that testimony, mm -hmm. you know, that the temple was the Lord's house. And so we'll also see that in the words of right. Luke as well. So powerful. Well, thank you for that. I, I do have to admit, one of the things that is so strong for me is this idea of the divinity of Christ and that he truly was a son of God. And I think we have to remember that as we start our reading of the New Testament and as we continue on. For me, uh, I know a lot of other religions and even Christians will say, oh, he was just a great teacher. And for me, that is not seeing the Savior the way he needs to be seen. He was the Son of God. And I love the way our own prophet today basically helps us understand that. President Nelson taught, according to eternal law, that atonement required a personal sacrifice by an immortal being not subject to death. Yet he must die and take up his own body again. The Savior was the only one who could accomplish this. From his mother, he inherited power to die. From his father, he obtained power over death. Now, we also have in the scriptures the testimony of the Savior in terms of this very concept. And I'm going to turn to John 10. In John 10, this is the Savior talking. He says, 
Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. So, I mean, this is a completely different thing that when I die, I'm not going to be able to figure out when I'm going to die, and and I'm not going to be able to take my life up again. You can't give something that isn't yours. And so as mortals, we're all going to die. There's no choice. So that is the divinity of Christ is so essential. Is the reason why he gave up his life. And then he says, no man taketh it from me. No man taketh it from me. So when we think of the Romans or we think of the Jews or whatever taking away the life, he's saying, no, they didn't do it, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my father. And so there is this submission of his will, which we're going to talk about even more later on today. But the next one that I wanted to read is actually in Luke, because Luke also had this strong testimony. Luke, like we said before, because he was a physician, had this these wonderful details about the body throughout right, right. in terms of he also is the only one that mentions that Jesus as a resurrected being eats, you know, actually takes and eats something. <laughs> That's another, you know, it's true, and he would be fascinated by and that. And he would be so interested. But he did the same thing in when he was talking about the Savior on the cross. Mm-hmm. And like you said, he he wasn't there, uh, to our knowledge. He, he wasn't there. He, wasn't, he probably talked to everybody that was. He that talked was to everyone there. that was. And this is what he mentions. He said, and then Jesus had cried with a loud voice. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So Luke, too, has that same testimony that the Savior was divine and that he gave up his life. It wasn't something that was taken from him like you and I when we die, Mm -hmm. but instead it was something that he gave freely for all mankind. What does that do for you and your testimony when you think about that? Well, it's coming out. I struggle sometimes with people that make Christ common because to me Christ is truly divine like he is a god he's immortal he wasn't the same although he came and was part of the flesh that divinity and that respect and that worship is different and I really feel strongly and and love that that he was willing to do that to give his life when he did not have to I agree and I think that as we contemplate that, hopefully we will use his name properly. I think of the power of the idea of reverence. And I think sometimes we live in a very irreverent world. And I know taking the Lord's name in vain is just something a lot of people just do. It's just a part of their conversation, and they don't even think about it anymore. But I'm, I'm hope and pray that we can be examples of making sure that we are careful and reverent as we use the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he truly was divine, and that we have that reverence and truly think about it when we say his holy name. I totally agree. So true. Well, as we... Um, 
look forward to all of these experiences. I'm especially thinking about these people who have waited and waited and waited <laughs> for these beautiful blessings that we're going to be talking about. I, I mean, I know many women who have waited for a child. Right. And we have such a beautiful story of what waiting really feels like as we talk about Zacharias and his beautiful wife. Well, Elizabeth and Zacharias are such an interesting example of someone who's waiting. I think there is an inappropriate expectation that if we're righteous enough, if we give enough and do enough, that the Lord's going to answer our prayers the way we want. And it's it's kind of this subconscious thing in the back of our minds. I, I don't know if you ever, she doesn't, but I bargain with the Lord a lot and I don't always win. But, um, but it, right at the beginning, and I love this about um, Luke, he says how righteous they are, how they, um, here in verse six, they were both righteous before their Lord, walking in all the commandments and order ordinances of the Lord blameless, blameless, and they had no children. And so that idea that they had done everything they should they could. and could, mm -hmm. and still the Lord hadn't blessed them. And so we know the story that Zacharias went into the temple to burn incense, and um, and it was his duty, and it was probably the only time in his life he would have gone into the temple. So, and it was such a big deal. And the incense, just like I have to review it because it's who I am. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But there were three things in the holy place. There was the incense that was burning that represented the prayers of the saints. There was the shoe bread. And it's interesting because do you say show bread or shoe bread? Shoe bread. Okay. It's shoe bread, but S-H-E-W is actually show like sewing machine. So never say shoe to me except for shoe bread, or I will correct you the same way Matthew corrected <laughs> the other. Because it's like my little pet peeve. It's Sounds show, good. but you can say shoe bread. And um, that was like the sacrament because there was also wine beside it. And then the last thing was the lampstand, lamp right. the only light in the temple, which was seven. And they say those seven were to represent the seven dispensations, which I think is fascinating because they were only at number four. So they still had... <laughs> So they were constantly looking forward. They were That's looking the, forward. They were the only Jews in the were middle. always looking forward. Always and looking now forward. we see that we're almost to that completion. The last light is going to be lit. It's kind of exciting. It is exciting. I know. So, but those ideas I thought of your act about focusing on the atonement which is like the sacrament, the shoe bread and the water, Definitely. and on Christ, which is the light of the world, and then on the prayers of the saints, which is our testimonies as we reach towards the Lord. And those three pieces are all there in the holy place. And isn't that great that he was in the midst of all those symbols right. when Gabriel comes? And I just want to make one comment about Gabriel. You know, Gabriel's name means man of God. I mean, we have that L at the end, Gabriel, man of God. And he was sent to Daniel. I mean, we talked about Daniel last week. He came to Daniel. He came to Zacharias, as you're going to be telling us. But he also came to Mary. And I love the fact that Joseph Smith, when he was talking to people, he was giving a sermon, he mentions that Gabriel is Noah. No. And when you're talking about waiting on the Lord, I thought, 
wow, just think how long Noah was waiting for this opportunity okay. to be able to But proclaim. don't you think the Lord evens out the playing field? Because Noah had the worst calling ever, <laughs> like watching all his friends die, yeah, no, like that it would have been so horrible. And then he gets to proclaim the birth of Christ. Isn't that amazing? It is. I know. And it's like the Lord really cared enough to make it even. Well, and he even goes to Daniel. And I really think he goes to Daniel to give Daniel a positive feeling like, don't worry. You know, it's really going to happen. <laughs> or maybe I'm he coming said, to tell you. maybe he said, you're not as bad as I am. I had to watch everyone. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't have known. Anyway. But um, but as we go in, he, of course, sees um, Gabriel and is told that he will have a son and um, doesn't believe it, is struck dumb. But this long waiting, you know, went and he finally had that answer come. And I loved that this, what Elder Holland said, he said, for every man instantly healed at the pools of Bethesda, there is another family left to wander in the desert for 40 years. And so even though it was interesting, I was talking to my daughter about this, and she said, they finally had their wish fulfilled right. before everyone that has their wish fulfilled later and the miraculous yes. For many, that yes never comes. Well, not in this life. Not in this life. And you're right. right. Ultimately, that everything gift is will made, come. made right. But that's true. It's a lot of waiting. It is a lot of it's waiting. A lot of waiting. And so it's interesting because the thing that hit me as I was contemplating this and pondering it was how do we wait faithfully? It's so hard, even if you're doing those externals, even if you're righteous, that feeling of losing hope. And the reason that he got struck dumb is because he kind of lost hope. Yeah. Like it would never happen. And even when the angel is saying it in the temple, there's still a point where he's like, are I you, I, are you yeah. sure? Yeah. Right. And so, um, but the thing that hit me was I was pondering this and I was like, oh, I just don't even know how to wait. Well, that's one of my worst faults is I am not patient. But um, I, I think told that's you. A hard, that's a hard Christ-like attribute to it have. Is. It is. Patience. And it's one you have to work on. It's really hard. But it was interesting because as I was pondering it, my little phone app popped up. And I know I keep on talking about this LDS library app. And the quote of the day just yesterday was um, on Neil L. Anderson's quote, and it was about drawing close to the Savior. It was from his October 2022 talk, right. and it said, having faith in Christ is more than a one-time decision. It's a sacred process that expands through the seasons of our lives, continuing until we kneel at his feet. And then he goes on to talk about that process of staying faithful through the edges of our lives. And he just says three quick things, but they were so powerful, I have to say them because they really hit me. The first was to immerse yourself in the life of Christ, that that lets you wait with faith. And I thought, how cool that with we're New doing New Testament. I know. I know. That's what we're doing this year. So we get that year. automatically. That's wonderful. The second was to make covenants with the Lord. And I think we have these huge steps we do when we um, do our temple covenants and even a whole week where we take the sacrament and renew our baptismal covenant. But for me, it's those baby steps that are just as important, that we make promises that as we take the sacrament, we say, okay, this week 
What little thing am I going to do? And we actually make covenants and keep those covenants. And that's what makes the big covenants work, is the idea of covenants. And the last one, which was the most powerful for me, was that we safeguard the Holy Ghost. Oh, that we're I love that word. It. Safeguard the Holy Ghost. I know. And I was like, that is so key. And um, I wanted to read one quote from President Nelson that he just said, and it said, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. And that that is so key well, amen. to that I mean, waiting I, faithfully. I know that's true. I know that's it is, true. It is so true. And that idea that it won't be possible to survive spiritually, that is terrifying. And he just said that. I know. So, Well... Oftentimes when we talk about that, we also have this other side of faithfully submitting to the waiting. I'm bad at both of them. <laughs> <laughs> so we not only have to do the waiting and the patience, but then we have to faithfully submit to what's going to happen. And it was interesting for me when I looked at every single time the angel came, and Joseph also had an angel that came to him. We don't know what angel. I... You know, I always kind of speculate that it might have also been Gabriel, but we don't know that. But I do think it's interesting to to think about what happens when the angel says, fear not. And what's the response? You know, when we, you know, patiently submit. And I don't know if you've ever been in a fearful situation, but when somebody Driving says... Driving in the snow. <laughs> from Rexburg and I come down to Provo. I know. So and scary. somebody says, well, fear not. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. And you can have one or two responses. It can be either, don't tell that to me. You know, I'm going through this horrible experience. Or, you know, it can be, okay, you know, I'll calm down. I'll submit my will. I'll be able to handle it. And we have some different reactions to this idea of fear not. It's interesting to see Joseph you know, the angel, he's wondering what to do about Mary because he's found out that she's with child. He doesn't want to make a public example of her and realize that there's a real possibility that if they don't, if they, if he doesn't do something with her, she will be stoned to death. And he does not want that to happen. And so while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And the thing that's interesting to me is immediately it says, and she shall bring forth a son. And then, and, and then he also says, behold, a virgin shall, you know, be with child. And he talks, you know, he, he also quotes the Old Testament. And then Joseph being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. And I love that because it's like, okay, the angel said, fear not. Joseph gets up. But and don't you know those men that. with that one track mind? <laughs> I, but it's I'm, like, fear not. Okay, I can just turn. I'm going to sub submit to the will oh. of the Lord. I understand what the angel said to me and I'm willing to do it. And I think for me, Joseph is such a powerful example of submitting to the will of the Lord. Now, Zacharias, you kind of already talked about where Zacharias is, a, is a, it's kind of an interesting foil here because 
he, you know, he also has the fear not experience. The angel comes and, and talks to him. And, you know, you know that he is a righteous man. He is a very righteous man. We already right. talked about that. And I kind of thought, okay, if an angel came to me, how would I respond? And the one thing that I think is interesting with Zacharias is where does he see the angel? I mean, for Joseph, it's in a dream. For Zacharias, he's in the temple. And this angel comes and tells him that, you know, his wife's going to have a baby. But his response, he said, you know, whereby shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife well stricken in years. And he's really having a problem with this. And then the angel, which I think is interesting, answers him and says, I am Gabriel. I know. Uh, and when I read that, I think... slaps him upside this, the head. I, <laughs> I feel like he's saying this loud voice. Yeah. I mean, when I, I hear it in my head, I'm, I'm like, oh, I am Gabriel, <laughs> that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. I mean, so he's making a strong statement to Zacharias. And it's. I feel like in some ways it's like, look, you're in the temple. I'm appearing to you in the temple. Of course, this is going to happen. Of course, this is going to come to pass. But don't you think there are layers and layers of disappointment? And and oh, sometimes course. that can't go in a moment. It takes longer to wear well, away. Think of all the, the years, all the months. I know they probably were hoping. Death, you know, and I know. And of it's hope. hard. It's, it's hard. true. But then, of course, we end with Mary, and Mary has the same experience. I mean, and I'm sure she had those same thoughts as Zacharias. Like she even says. You know, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? But then as Gabriel explains to her what's going to happen, her response is very different. And instead, Mary says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And so we have this beautiful experience of her just submitting her will. And for me, the fear not for, for Mary is even more significant because for her to say, be it according to my will, she is risking her life. You know, the possibility of, of being stoned to death, but also the possibility of being completely shunned by society. And she doesn't know what's going to happen in terms of that, but just in faith goes forward. One of my favorite, favorite talks that happened, this is back in 1985. This was done by Neil A. Maxwell. Mm-hmm. And this the significance of this talk was he had found out that he was having cancer, that he had cancer. And he wrote this talk willing to submit. And every time I read it, it just brings me to tears because of Elder Maxwell's beautiful testimony. And his willingness to submit to chemo. My understanding is that he took more chemo than anyone had at that point. And it was able to in essence, heal a lot more people, that there was a willingness to submit either you get better or you don't. But he says, yielding one's heart to God signals the last stage in our spiritual development. Obviously, he had reached that stage. I'm still working towards that stage. Only then are we beginning to be fully useful to God. How can we sincerely pray to be an instrument in his hands if the instrument seeks to do the instructing? And that kind of goes right along with what you were saying is, you know, this this impatience we have 
We want things to be taken care of right now. We want to know the end from the beginning. Mm -hmm. We want to understand it all. But what he's saying is we have to leave it up to God. We have to be an instrument in his hand other than trying to fix it ourselves. Now, Mary, like we said, is a perfect example. And I know you love the song of Mary, and it is so beautiful as she talks about the submission of her will. Right. Well, it is fascinating to me because after Mary, and just to give you context, after Mary comes down to Elizabeth and sees Elizabeth pregnant, Elizabeth then immediately worships her as the mother of Christ. And Mary has said nothing about it. And I think for how much faith she had, getting that second witness from Elizabeth that she whom was she caring, loved, who she, she did loved, love, is just so sweet. And just think she was old and Mary was young, yeah. but um, but she did love her and respect her. And to hear that second witness was such a big deal. And then in response, Mary sings her own song. And if you look down in the um, in the footnotes again, you'll see in uh, verses at 40, sorry, I have to wear my glasses, six. It says, mm-hmm. look under singing. So it's funny because we call this the song of Mary. Right. And there are five songs in the scriptures in the Bible of women. And so um, there's the song of Miriam, which is a song of victory after the Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea. There's the song of Deborah and J.L., which we love. The we love. <laughs> there's Hannah's song, which is just beautiful. Elizabeth, when she bears record, that's also considered her song. And then Mary's song, which is um, just about the longest equivalent to Hannah. But um, it was interesting because as I was first reading this, I thought it's odd that she goes on so much about how lowly the lowly are made high and the high are made lowly. And I thought, well, was she just so poor? Was it that bad? And you know, you're kind of going there. And then I look down at the footnotes. We're in Luke, not in Matthew, so I'm not as used to that. And I learned so much because you talked about her willingness to submit. And when I was in Mutual, I heard, Behold Thy Handmaiden, Lord. We used to sing that song. Of course. And it was such a big deal. You know, it was like a huge idea. But she was quoting the song of Hannah. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) It was so touching. And um, I was shocked because I had never... It changed the way you did. And as she goes through her song, each stanza is a fulfillment of prophecy of Christ. And so first of all, the one she quotes from Hannah, Hannah says in 1 Samuel, Remember me and not forget thy handmaiden, but will give unto thy handmaiden a man-child. Then will I give him unto the Lord all the days of my life. So when she says, Behold thy handmaiden, She's willing to give this beautiful son back to the Lord, knowing the sacrifice. And then she goes on. It is so beautiful. And I'll be quick because I could go on forever about this. But when it says he scattereth the proud, that phrase is from Exodus, talking about the Egyptians and how they were under the hand of the Egyptians, just like Christ is under the hand of the Romans. And I think it's so interesting because with the Egyptians, they were, in, a, in essence, wiped out. Right. With the Romans, they never interfered with his ministry. And actually, he wasn't only able to continue his preaching despite 
than being over them. He also was able to use them through Paul to touch and communicate with so many people beyond that. So look at the difference in in the way he overcomes. Right. It's just amazing, the fulfillment. Um, next, he says, he will put down the mighty out of their seat in verse 52. And that's from a promise made to David that it will be of the fruit of thy body will I set on the throne of thy seat. And so that idea that it will actually be from David, right. which Christ is. And then that the um, he will exalt them of low degree comes from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, when they were going off to Babylon, made a prophecy that God would remove the diadem, which is the headpiece of the high priest, and the crown, and would give them both to Christ. And at that point, both the high priesthood had a little bit been hijacked, and the crown, which wasn't even a Jew, over Jerusalem, and both of them were given to Christ. Um, And then finally, her last phrase in verse 53, which is so cool, if you look, has no footnotes, because it's Mary's own prophecy. And listen, sorry, (laughs) he hath filled the hungry with good things. When was that fulfilled? The feeding of the 5,000. Of course. Just his preaching everything. Uh. And the rich he has sent away empty. Mm -hmm. And so you look at that one and you're like, the rich young man, Oh, yeah. Well, and the Sadducees. I know so many. So many. And so it's just so beautiful. And the thing that I walked away from, and this was a new discovery for me, that Mary wasn't only a handmaiden of the Lord. She was a scriptorian. And duh, wouldn't the Lord choose someone that would teach? Think the power of a mother in a child's life in preparing them and molding them. I'm, I know you've had this experience, but when you look at your child and you know their possibilities, you know what they're able to become. And I think sometimes this beautiful example of, of, a, of a mother whose heart was softened and touched, but also prophetic. Right. And she really did have prophecy in these beautiful words. And. I would even go on to say that because she was so prepared understanding the scriptures, when this event happened, it wasn't like she could go back and check. She knew all those pieces ahead of time. It was part of her heart. It was part part of of her her heart. So she could see, wow, from here, from here, from here, each of those fulfillments, and then sharing that with the Savior through his whole young life and teaching because she knew. Well, the other thing that I love about that scripture too is that the way it's kind of put in here is that it's Mary and Elizabeth and so the two of them it's almost like both of them are bearing testimony together I love it of the Savior Jesus Christ and both of them understanding that their sons as cousins will be a part of this that John the Baptist that you know Elizabeth will be having will also be a part of this. She's, she has the child that leaps in her womb. She feels it. I know. And I just love the fact that women are bearing testimony of the Savior right from the beginning. It is so beautiful. Okay, do I have to add one more thing when Zacharias then finally can speak? And he says about the day spring. Did you see that when he finally comes? 
I should have circled it in blue, but he says that this is the day spring. And that term oh, day spring is so cool because it means the point where the sun first comes up over the horizon. Oh, you know when you're watching wonderful. the sunrise and you what see that little word. touch? Day I know, spring. day spring. I know. And that this was the day spring of the coming of Christ. And so that idea is so cool that oh. they were sitting there right at the cusp, that these babies is the very beginning of that beauty. Well, right from the beginning, we have these strong and fervent testimonies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is truly divine. And as we continue, I, you know, how wonderful to be able to even write down all the testimonies that we hear and that we, we are reading in these beautiful scriptures, especially testimonies of women, because we're going to see more and more of those testimonies of women as we continue. In That's true. I was also thinking of your journal beside your bed that oh, we yeah. talked about last time. And I was thinking that just like this song of Mary, that she must have re-sung to herself to remember the words all the way oh, I love when, that. Um, when Luke, Luke was came. there. But I think we should be writing our own songs. We should be writing our own testimonies and rehearsing them to ourselves to keep those moments of such power when we felt that connection to Christ, when we felt it well up inside of us, those moments of miracles, so clear in our heart that when there's times of waiting where it may not be as clear, we can remember and feel as we do today. But don't you think that she also sang this song to her son? You know, that this okay, was a song that she sang to her son. <laughs> and, and along with that, as we oh, do our own song and write our own song, that we sing it to our families. Oh, wow. That yeah. they know our testimony, that they know these beautiful, I mean, we too, as women, can prophesy of our families. You know, Absolutely. we can also have those same insights and, and beautiful understandings. I mean, Mary is just for me, just that, you know, I always read and think about her as a mom. Oh. Knowing from the beginning, she did know from the beginning what the ending was going to be of her child and how hard that must have been from the very beginning. It's true. But what a gift to have those moments of joy and beauty and that, that close relationship with Christ. And I just pray that each one of us can find that relationship with the Savior through our prayers and through reading that we feel that same closeness. Well, and I do hope and pray that each one of us can have that same testimony of his divinity, that we can know that he truly was the Son of God, and that through his atonement, each one of us can gain eternal life. And that is the blessing that we have from him. Well, thank you for joining with us today. And we hope and pray that each one of you will have that same testimony of the Savior in your life. Mm -hmm.